Last weekend was probably the most difficult weekend that I have ever had here. In fact, just a little background. So uh, we could go Thursday, uh, woke up in the morning with, um, with a toothache. Which now, I'll just tell you what, I'm not a fan of anything dental. I'm just like, you know, like give me an appendicitis or whatever, but just don't, no, I don't want to, toothache, I woke up and I'm like, oh no, and you know, I'm going to have to call my doctor and, and my, my dentist, you know. And you have to understand, I love my dentist. We're good friends. I love to go out to lunch with my dentist. I just don't like him sticking his hands in my mouth. That's just like, it's my thing. And so he's a great guy, he's a great dentist, but I've always told him, I really, let's go out to lunch, but I don't want to see you professionally. Uh, but anyways, that, oh, I'm going to have to call and then about an hour after I got two, they can went away, and I'm like, oh, sweet, it's good. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. And so, anyways, kind of went through the day. The next day, woke up Friday morning. Toothache was back. Um, it was pretty bad. Uh, I thought, well, you know, I prayed yesterday and it went away. <laughs> Try again. So I prayed again, and I, you know, it didn't go away. Now it was Saturday, Saturday morning. It was getting pretty bad, and, um, and I didn't want to call him because I knew he'd go in, and it was Father's Day weekend, and I just thought, well, I'll just, I'll get through the weekend. Maybe it'll go away, and, you know, so <clears throat> Saturday's going by. Saturday night, it's almost time for church. By this time, I'm in so much pain <clears throat> that I'm just hiding in my office, and, you know, I don't know, just something about toothache pain. It's just the worst. So I'm hiding in my office, and I'm going to come down, and I remember having this discussion with God. So my discussion was this. I said, you know, God, like all week long, uh, I've been studying your word and um, I've been pastoral. And, you know, I've been, I've been in prayer all week and now I'm, I'm going to get up and I'm going to preach your word. I'm going to preach Jesus, preach the gospel. I'm going to honor you. I'm going to love you. You know, isn't there any way that you could just reciprocate a little bit by taking the, taking the pain away? Does it seem fair at all, God, that, you know, and in fact, not only did the pain not go away, but Sunday morning, it was so bad that I couldn't, if, if my tongue even brushed up against my tooth, it was just excruciating. So I, I never have had a weekend where I came up and preached a sermon and I just kind of, I just had to focus everything I had on preaching that sermon in my notes and getting through it and not screaming at some point, you know. And so anyways, I got, but the whole time I just kept thinking to myself, you know, God, this just doesn't seem fair. Like I'm serving you, I'm loving you, I'm pointing people to Jesus, all this stuff. Like, can't you just do a little miracle, you know, surgery on my tooth. And, but no, no, I didn't get any of that. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you felt like you were serving God and you felt like you were loving God. You felt like you were doing what you're supposed to do. And, and you asked God for something and you asked him to take something away, something that was painful, something, maybe a relational thing, whatever it is, a financial thing, and God doesn't take it away. It's just there. Like, what do you do in those times? How do you process those situations? Well, today we're, we're talking about a man named John. Uh, we call him John the Baptizer, John the, John the Dunker. And um, John's an extraordinary man. We, uh, we've talked about him several times as we've been making our way through the Gospel of Luke. And we're back to him today. We call him Johnny B. And um, just a little, little background, a little reminder. Um, Johnny uh, came from uh, some parents who loved God who were serving God. His father was a priest. 
Uh, they'd always wanted kids. They'd prayed for kids apparently, but they'd never had kids. And now they reach a point in life where they're past um, childbearing years. Some commentators think they're maybe in their 70s at this point. And uh, one day, God sends an angel who appears to uh, John's dad and says, you know, congratulations, God's heard your prayers. <laughs> He's probably thinking, really? Now I'm like 75 and now you've heard my prayers and now uh, you're going to have a son and his name's going to be John and he's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah and he's going to have the Holy Spirit. It's going to be an amazing thing. He's going to go forth in the power of Elijah and we're told that John was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. There's like, there's a crazy thing to think about for a minute. God appoints him to be a mighty prophet. After 400 years of no prophet, zero prophet, zero word from God, here comes John on the scene. He lives in the wilderness. Commentators think because of his, uh, the advanced age of his parents, uh, he may have been orphaned at a very young age. He grows up in the wilderness. You know, he's, he's living down by the river. Um, he begins to preach when he's probably about 30 years old. People start coming from all, the, an uneducated man, and people start coming from everywhere, traveling sometimes for days at a time to come and to hear John preach. And he would yell at them, and he would tell them to repent. And they would repent. People were repenting of their sin. And John was baptizing them. In fact, one day, Jesus comes along, and John baptizes Jesus. Again, just a crazy, like that would be pretty cool on your resume <laughs> if you were going into ministry. Like, yeah, you know, I, I don't know, I baptized the Son of God. That seems like something important. And he introduces Jesus to other people. But now when we come to Luke chapter 7, Luke doesn't tell us something that uh, Matthew does in his gospel, and that's this. John is now in prison. John is in prison. Like, What? Here's a man who's been living for God, loving God, living boldly for God, and now he's in prison. I want you to notice in chapter 7, verse 28, what Jesus says about John. He says, I tell you, among those born of women, none, none is greater than John. In other words, John's pretty awesome. And if you've ever wondered what would it look like to be a great person, and I hope that you would, he says, look at John. Now, this is important because John's life doesn't fit most definitions of greatness. I mean, think about it. John's not rich, right? He's, uh, he lives in a cardboard box by the river. In our world today, we think, you know, we equate lots of money with greatness. Uh, this is a guy who didn't have a home. He, we're told he ate bugs, you know. He lived in, he wore camel hair khakis. That's, you know, kind of hand-me-downs from other prophets. He's not connected to the religious establishment, no degree from a prestigious school, doesn't have a chariot in his garage, actually doesn't have a garage. And here's the big thing, he's incarcerated, right? He's in, he's in prison. What kind of people get put into prison, right? People who break the law, right? People who are cheaters and liars and murderers and thieves and, and, and John's in prison. So people are saying, what's up with John? John's in prison, People are starting to write him off, push him aside. Jesus says, whoa, wait a minute. Here's what you need to know about John. You need to forget all that usual stuff because John is a great, great man. In fact, no one who's ever walked the face of this earth besides the Son of God himself is greater than Jesus. And yet here is this man, this great man, in the midst of adversity. I told you a story at the beginning about my, my toothache, you know, and now God, is this fair? And I'm just kind of joking in a way because that's nothing Nothing compared to the adversity that John 
is facing at this point in his life. We can learn some amazing things from John when it comes to adversity. So I want to talk about that, some, some of the ways that John dealt with adversity. And the first is this. When John had a question, when John was in a tough spot, John went to Jesus with his questions. He had questions and he asked those questions. In verse 18, which is where we pick up the text. Now the disciples of John reported all these things to him. So now remember, John's in prison and Jesus is out working miracles. In fact, we've talked recently about how he raised someone from the dead, right? So he raises someone from the dead and John's got a few disciples. Now most of his disciples are following Jesus now because it's hard to follow John. He's in prison, right? So you kind of got to follow John from a distance. So he's lost most of his disciples. But he's got a few and they come and they tell John what they've seen. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord to ask a question. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now, commentators and scholars are just all over the map in terms of what this means and, and, and what's going on in John's heart at this point. But I think one of the things that reminds me of is this. No matter how long you've been a Christian or how many sermons you've heard or, or how many devotionals you've done or how many books you've read or how many miracles of God you've seen, you're going to have questions at times. I mean, I think we just need to get it out there and say that. You're going to have questions at times. It doesn't mean that you doubt God. It doesn't mean that you're turning away from God. It doesn't mean that you're a bad follower of Christ. You just, you just have a question. It's not unbelief. It's not rejection. It's just a question. Now, sometimes you'll have a question because there's something new that you need to learn about Jesus that you didn't know. And so you, you, you need that information. A couple weeks ago, two weeks ago, we're talking about the sovereignty of God. Uh, afterwards, after one of the sermons, I had a, a, a new Christian come up and say, hey, so what's this thing about the sovereignty of God? It, I mean, you said that God's sovereign and what? So he's in charge and nothing can frustrate his will and he can do everything he wants to do. What, is that true? Is that actually in the Bible? So and we sat down and we talked about it because it's a new Christian. They'd, he'd never heard about the sovereignty of God. So he talked about the sovereignty of God. He had some questions. He wasn't afraid to ask me. He just asked me. I don't know what it is. Can you tell me? When I was done explaining it to him, he looked at me and he said, wow, well, if Jesus is sovereign, that kind of changes like everything, right? I'm like, yeah, yeah, you're getting it. It kind of does change everything. But then sometimes, maybe you've been a Christian for years and there's truths that you've known, but those truths have never really been, you've never experienced them in a particular way and now you are. And so you have some questions. Like again, last week we talked about Romans 8, 28. I had somebody who'd been a Christian for many, many, many years come up afterwards and say, you know, I've heard that verse. I memorized that verse. I knew that verse. But I'm going through some stuff right now. It's really tough. It's really hard. And now I'm really starting to understand the truth of this verse and what it means. It doesn't mean that, that everything in my life is going to be good. It doesn't mean that everything in my life is going to be easy. It just means that God is going to repurpose everything in my life. Yes, I'm like, yes, you're getting that. So sometimes we have to relearn things as well. John has some questions. Now it says, when the men had come to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, in other words, John has a question for you, Jesus, and here it is. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now, as I said, commentators and scholars are all over the place here. Some say John's lost his faith, right? John's just complete, he, he's, he's shipwrecked, he's in prison, what's going on? I don't think John's lost his faith at all. I just think he has questions. And he has questions for two common reasons that we often have questions as well. The first is this, John's just experiencing hardship. He's just, he's in a tough place. So again, think about this. 
God called John to live in the wilderness, and he did, right? Uh, he forsook the, the comforts of home in the city. Uh, God called him to preach repentance, and he did. God called, you know, he told him to, to baptize, and he did. He told John to point people to Jesus, and he did. He did everything that God asked him to do, and now he's in prison. He's alone. Prison back then was a horror. There's no cable TV or workout rooms in prison, all right? It was a horrible situation, terrible. They would often just starve you for weeks at a time. And so just imagine, he's in prison, and maybe he's thinking, did I do something wrong? <laughs> you know, did I just imagine that God called me? To, to preach in the wilderness? To, 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 is Jesus really God? Have you ever been in a situation that was so hard, that was so difficult, that hurt so much that you began to, you just, you asked questions. God, what's going on here? I think we've probably all been there if we've lived long enough. You're, you're living for Jesus, you're loving him, and personal tragedy strikes. And when it does, it causes us to ask some good questions at times. Here's the second reason, though, that maybe John was asking this, and that is because he had wrong expectations. Now, there was a very well-defined theology of the Messiah around the time of John. Scholars and rabbis had spent a lot of time, Pharisees a lot of time, going through the Old Testament, figuring out what the Messiah would be like. And the idea was this, that the Messiah would kind of have a two-fold ministry. One is he would draw the hearts of the children back to their father. So there would be a spiritual restoration but he would also bring a political restoration. The belief was that he would come and rescue the nation of Israel from their sinfulness and from their captors. And so now Jesus comes along and um, he's not exactly executing judgment on wicked people and executing judgment on, on the political leaders as foretold in the Old Testament. Instead, Jesus is bringing compassion you know, he's, he's healing people. He's, he's got grace for sinners. He's, he's eating and drinking with tax collectors instead of judging them. You know, he, and, and he's going to parties with people that good Jews would, would, would not you know, hang out with. And, and wicked King Herod is living in luxury and living in comfort. And the religious leaders are just as arrogant and self-righteous and judgmental as they had ever been. And meanwhile, John is suffering in prison while all these atrocities are taking place and, and Jesus doesn't seem to be doing anything about it. That's John's situation. So I think what it comes down to is this. John is not where he expected to be at this point in his life and Jesus isn't doing what John expected him to be doing either. I don't think it ever occurred to John that he would live boldly for Jesus and end up rotting in prison. It probably, like he may have had like eight or nine scenarios. I'm guessing that wasn't one of them. And sometimes we find ourselves in places like that in life. We didn't anticipate, we didn't see it coming. We, didn't, it never, we never imagined it and suddenly there we are. And we're like, where, where's God? Where's Jesus in this situation? And what I've noticed over the years is this. I've, I've met professing Christians who follow God when times are easy and then as soon as difficulties come, they fall away. Sometimes it's because God didn't do what they expected. You know, maybe they didn't get what they thought they deserved. Maybe they didn't get the grade they wanted. Or maybe, the, you know, they didn't go out on the date that they were hoping for. Or, or the marriage that they hoped for. Or the healing that they asked for. Or the career that they wanted. Or the prosperity that they thought they deserved. Or the health that they asked for. They asked for it. They expected it. But they didn't get it. And now they're confused. 
They're confused. John had a question. So he sent two disciples to the right guy. He sent him to Jesus. Remember, he can't go. He's in prison. And the question is, is Jesus the one? Because I think John's just saying this. You know, if you're really the Messiah, then I, I think John's saying, then I'm good with that. I, I can live with that. But I just want to be sure because my whole life is on the line here, right? I just want to be sure. I want to hear Jesus say it. Here's my question for you. What questions do you have right now for Jesus? What questions do you have? Maybe it's about something you're going through and you just, you don't understand, you know? Maybe it's something he said in the, in, in the gospel and you just, you're having a hard time with it or it's something he did or it's some theological point right now that you're just, you can't quite work through or something that you heard in a sermon or it's more, it's a hardship that you're going through and you're wondering, where's God right now? I don't understand. Maybe it's a relational issue. Maybe it's a recent Supreme Court decision. You know, you just, you're just like, God, where are you right now? I don't, I don't understand. How do you seek answers? Right? Well, you read your Bible. Remember, the, 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 the word of God is Jesus to us. It's his words to us. That's what scripture says. You want to hear from Jesus? Go to the word. Go to church. Be with other believers. Worship God. Pray together. Hear good teaching together. Get in a grow group with other people and ask them questions. Read good books and find spiritually mature people. Here's what you don't want to do. Don't just pretend that, it, you know, I just hope it's going to go away. I just hope this, no, ask the question. Here's what I love about John, you know. John's like, John's, here's what John's not doing. John's not saying, well, if I ask this question, then someone's going to write it down, put it in the gospel, and years from now, scholars and pastors will question my integrity. And say John was losing his faith. Oh no, poor John. I love the fact that John doesn't care about any of that. He just wants to hear from God. Last night someone shared a, uh, a quote with me I want to read to you. This is great. This is from Douglas Wilson, great pastor. He said this, desperate times call for faithful men and not for the careful men. The careful men come later and write the biographies of the faithful men. <laughs> right? This is John, right? John's like, I'm gonna live boldly for Jesus and if I have a question, then I'm gonna ask that question. And he asked it of Jesus. And here's the second thing. When it comes to answers, he trusts the answers that he gets from Jesus. Sometimes, I'm just going to say, sometimes we get questions, answers from Jesus and we don't like it. But will we trust him? Going on in verse 21. In that hour, Jesus healed. So here's the picture. John sends the disciples, are you the one? They ask Jesus, are you the one? Jesus is like, hold on just a minute. <laughs> Before I answer that, it says he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And then he answered them after he did that. I love this. Then he said, go and tell John what you have seen and what you have heard. That the blind received their sight. Now actually Jesus in this, this passage we're reading here is referencing sections of Isaiah. Five different passages of scripture in Isaiah that were written hundreds of years before Isaiah is often referred to as the fifth gospel because it has more promises and prophecies regarding the Messiah than any other book of scripture in the Old Testament. So Jesus replies, go tell John that all the stuff he, he studied in, in the book of Isaiah that the Messiah would do, tell him that you saw me. You saw me do that stuff. You didn't just hear me, you saw me do it. What did you see me do? Jesus says the blind received their sight. I knew somebody years ago, a musician, totally blind, never ever been able to see. 
never saw a sunrise. He had never really thought about it before. He'd never seen a sunrise. He was married, but never seen the, the, the face of his wife. He had three kids. He'd never seen his children. He'd never looked at a printed Bible. Never sat in a church full of worshipers and, and, and saw what that looked like, how awesome that is. But see, in the kingdom of God, the blind will see. And to prove it, Jesus says, well, let's see, how can I prove to you that, well, I know, here's a guy who's blind, I'll just heal him. <laughs> that seems like pretty good proof. And then he says, go tell John what you saw. He says, the lame will walk. In this world, there are, the, you know, there are crutches and walkers and wheelchairs and scooters. And you know, last summer, I was up on crutches for a couple of months, and I can tell you, I don't like crutches. <laughs> They're like, no fun. And it reminded me, in the kingdom of God, there'll be no crutches. There'll be no wheelchairs. And I had people walking out last night going, oh, my hip hurts me. Oh, my knees hurt me. And I'm like, isn't it cool to think there'll be none of that, right? None of that in the kingdom of God in heaven. The lame will walk. The lepers are cleansed. This, this terrible, contagious skin disease back in Jesus' day where people would lose feeling, where their, their skin would rot and fall off. And it was basically a death sentence. And basically what he's saying is this, that, that Jesus can heal disease. Even the disease that people can't heal, he can heal. That in the kingdom of God, all will be healthy. All will be able to, to, to experience the kind of life that comes from having limbs that work and knees that don't hurt. He said the deaf will hear. Those who have never heard their own voice you ever think about there are people in this world that we brush up against who are deaf. They've never, they've never even heard their own voice. They've never heard people singing or the laughter of a child. Jesus says in the kingdom of God, everyone will hear. Everyone will walk. No one will have pain or crutches. No one will have diseases. The dead, the dead will be raised. Last week we looked at a passage where Jesus raises someone from the dead physically. Why did he do it? Because he's demonstrating. He's going around making a claim. His claim is this. You're dead in your trespasses and sin and you deserve the judgment of God. But because of what Christ is going to do for us, he says on the cross, if we place our faith in him, he can forgive us of our sin and give us eternal life. He'll raise us from the dead. People are probably going, well, anyone can say that. How can I know you can do that? Oh, I know. Here's a guy coming out of town right now who's dead. <laughs> Uh, if I raised a physical, you know, dead person, would you believe? Well, sure, that, that'd be convincing. So he does it. He says, tell John what you've seen. I actually raise people from the dead. And the poor have good news preached to them. See, in this world, the poor tend to get overlooked, especially in, in, in Jesus' day. They would get overlooked. People would avoid them at, Last Thursday, I had to go into Portland. I was coming up to a stoplight and there was somebody there with the sign, you know, asking for money. And it's really interesting to watch the different coping mechanisms for people who don't want to get involved. Like they'd pull, I watched, they'd pull up and then they just wouldn't make eye contact, right? Because if you don't make eye contact with the person who's coming up to your window, then you don't have to say no and feel terrible, right? So that people are texting totally against the law, but they're willing to risk it as long as they don't have to make eye contact with a needy person. And that's kind of what our world's like. Don't make eye contact with them, segregate them. 
It made me think about how back in the, in the 70s and the 80s, there was a real popular evangelism strategy that I used to see, especially on campuses, but in workplaces. And the idea was this, that if you focus your evangelism efforts on the rich people, if you can win rich people to Jesus, if you can win bosses to Jesus, CEOs to Jesus, if you can go on campus and win the athletes to Jesus, right, and the popular people to Jesus, then all the other people, all the lemmings will follow along. So you want to you reach the rich people. You want to build your churches in rich neighborhoods. You want to preach on topics that rich people like and, and focus on them. Jesus comes along and his strategy is, I'm going to hang out with the poor. I'm going to go eat with the poor. I'm going to hang out with the sick and the hurting and the hungry. That's how I'm going to change the world. The good news is this. See, we're all in the same boat. No matter how much money you have in your bank account, no matter what neighborhood you live in or what your paycheck is like, the Bible says very clearly that every one of us apart from Christ are absolutely spiritually destitute. We are poor. We've got nothing in the spiritual bank at all. Jesus paid it all. All of it. We bring nothing to the table. He offers to us grace. Christ has done it all. He tells the disciples to go tell John about these things, that the gospel is preached to the poor. Remember, John's in prison. John couldn't see any of this stuff. John didn't get to see someone raised from the dead. John didn't get to see someone receive back their sight. And in, you and I are in a similar position to John, right? We, we, we didn't live 2,000 years ago. None of us got to hear Jesus preach firsthand. But we have the testimony of people who did. Remember, John had to basically receive the testimony of people. He didn't see it himself. That's us today. None of us saw Jesus raise someone from the dead, but we have a testimony from eyewitnesses in the gospel. We didn't see the blind receive their sight or the sick healed or thousands fed. But we have those testimonies. See, what made John great was he believed these things about Jesus, things that he hadn't seen with his own eyes. Blessed are you who have not seen and yet believe. And then he says this, Jesus says, blessed is the one not offended by me. Now again, this is where a lot of commentators and scholars kind of blow up and there's a lot of ideas about what this means and what could Jesus be saying. I think there's a couple of possibilities here. One is, that Jesus was doing ministry different than John imagined he would. John just never pictured it would go like this, that he would be in prison and Herod would be living the life and the religious leaders would, would still be as awful as ever. And, but, but Jesus is encouraging John to not be offended, but to trust. So I think we need to be careful about coming to Jesus with our agendas. And we do. I think a lot of times we have no idea how we do it. But we come to Jesus. Jesus, I'm going to do this, bless me. Jesus, I'm going to, I want to do this, bless me. I've said this many times. There's two different ways to come to Jesus when you pray. One is you bring your plan to God and say, God, I need you to bless this. Now here's, one, here's what I've learned, and I told you this not too long ago. I learned this. Whenever I have to ask God to bless something, that's usually a red warning flag. <laughs> right? If, if, if basically I'm pursuing God's plan for my life, if I'm pursuing God's agenda and not mine, see if, I, if my agenda is what I bring to God, then yeah, I need to ask him to bless it. But if I'm pursuing God's agenda, why do I need him to, I don't need him to ask him to, to bless his agenda for my life. 
I just need to ask for power and strength to be faithful. Be careful about bringing your agenda to Jesus and then asking him to bless it. The Bible says his ways are not our ways. His plans, his, his plans for you are far above any plan you could ever come up with. You could sit down and take a couple of days with a, with a piece of paper and write out all the potential scenarios of how God could work greatly in your life and you probably wouldn't come up with his plan for you. John maybe had five or six or seven scenarios, I don't know, of how his life would go, but my guess is that the way it actually went wasn't on that list. And so it will be for us at times. Jesus says, if you want to be blessed, don't be offended by me. Don't be offended by my plan. Believe in me. And the third thing is this. John was a man who was decreasing as Jesus was increasing in his life. Let me explain this in verse 24. Now when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. And he said, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? So now, a little context, and we'll get more into this next week. But John was out, uh, he had been preaching a very bold message, probably, um, probably offending a lot of people, probably making a lot of enemies. And now that he's in prison, everyone sees it as their opportunity to slander him, to judge him. I wish that I could say we don't do the same thing in the church today, but we do it a lot. People come out and preach boldly for Jesus, and then it turns out they're just human, but we're in such a hurry to judge them, come down hard on them. I don't know why we can't learn our lesson. But this is what they do. They start slandering John. They start saying stuff about, they were actually saying that maybe John's demon-possessed. That's one of the rumors that was going around. John has a demon. They were questioning John's character. Maybe they were saying things like, you know, if John was really a prophet, would he be in prison? You know, would he really be suffering if he was really a man of God? Maybe God's punishing him because he was so pridefully, you know, calling people to repent. So Jesus sets a record straight. He just, after the disciples leave, he says, I know there's a lot of, you know, I know you've been reading People magazine. I know you've been on the internet. I know you've been reading some stuff about John at Slanders. Let me just set the record straight. When you went out to see John, what did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a, a reed swayed by the wind? Now this is a euphemism in the day of, of just somebody who would bend, you know, somebody would go, like John would preach and then, and then winds of criticism would come and so John would, you know, he'd sway and okay, well I won't, you know, I won't preach about that anymore. I'll back off. When the suffering comes, you know, he wimps out, he backs away. Jesus just says, John is a man of conviction. John is a man of courage. When, when he gets criticized, he doesn't back down. When people push back and say, you need to tone down the repentance stuff. John doesn't sway in the wind. If you slander his reputation, he'll still boldly point people to Jesus. If you publicly oppose him, he'll still point people to Jesus. If you throw him in prison, he'll still follow Jesus and point people to, to, to Jesus. So he says, what then did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. <laughs> Again, this, is a, this would be a good passage for 
a lot of church leaders and, and Christian celebrities to read today. Every, it seems like every day I'm reading about another Christian who just bought it, you know, a pastor who bought an executive jet or an $8 million home. And they believe this is proof somehow that God loves them and cares for them. Jesus, like, I don't know, the greatest man who ever lived, lived in poverty. The greatest man who ever lived didn't even have a home. What then did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a prophet? Yes, yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it was written, behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. He says, this is the man that Malachi wrote of 400 years earlier, that God would send a prophet to be the forerunner of the Messiah. Here's why Here's why John is more than a typical prophet. Because every prophet that came before John only talked about the Messiah who would one day come. But John got to actually meet the Messiah. John got to baptize the Messiah. He dunked the Son of God. Just think about that. And introduced him as the Lamb of God to his disciples. I've noticed three different attitudes about greatness over the years from Christians. I just wonder which one is, is yours. The first one is this. Sometimes I meet Christians and I'd, I'd have to say that this is more often than not the case. People who just don't care about greatness. I meet people all the time who are like, you know what, I'm not interested in being great because here's the problem with great. Great Christians get persecuted. Great Christians get thrown in prison. Great Christians lose their jobs. Great Christians get kicked out of their neighborhoods. Great Christians end up getting slandered. I don't want to be a great Christian. I just want to make the minimum monthly payment to get a mansion in heaven, right? What is that? What do I have to do? How many times a month do I have to go to church? I don't want to do more than that. I don't want to draw attention. I don't want people talking about me on the internet. I don't want people rejecting me. I don't want to be great. I just want to go to heaven. <laughs> People who are filled with the Holy Spirit of God, who have the word of God, who have the power of prayer, who have the fellowship of believers just want to get into heaven. It doesn't even have to be a mansion, God. I don't care if I live in a cul-de-sac where there's just tons of kids playing in the street all the time and everyone's parking their cars and I can't get in my driveway. I'll be okay with that if I can just get to heaven, but I don't want to be great, God. Because great is hard. Because great is difficult. Because great is John. And I'd never say it out loud, but I don't want to be John. I just want to get into heaven. And then there are the people who say, I will. That's the key there. I will. I will achieve greatness through whatever it is. I will do it by being a good person. I will achieve greatness by being a loving person. I will achieve greatness, whatever your definition. I'll read my Bible a lot. I'll go to church a lot. I'll, go to, I'll be in a grow group. I'll share my faith with tons of people. Here's the deal, God. I will become a great person by sharing my faith with someone every single day. How's that? I will become great by being generous. Here's the bad news. In your own power, you might accomplish some, some, some good things, but you will fall short of true greatness of the power of God, of the joy of God. And here's why. 
Because the only approach that works is the third one. I will let God be great in me. This was John's strategy for greatness. I will let God be great in me. In John chapter 3 verse 30, here's what John said. Speaking of Jesus, he said, he said that he must increase. That's Jesus. But I must decrease. John said, Jesus must what? Let's try that again. Jesus must Yeah. But I must decrease. See, the gospel is this. Jesus came to be for me what I could never be for myself. God places his Holy Spirit in us, makes us a new person, gives us a new heart, gives us a new power, gives us a new destiny. That means that we can have a great life, not because we're great, but because God is great. The key is this. Will we let God be God in us? The only way that that can happen is we must decrease so that God can increase. We must divest ourselves of who we are so God can fill us up with who he is to let God be great. Now we talk a lot in this church about oikos and you've heard this before. Oikos is a Greek word. We find this in the New Testament. The word means household. Uh, not the way we think of household today. So when we say, or if somebody came up to you today and said, who's in your oikos, who's in your household? We think English, why in terms of the English word uh, household, we think, well, let's say I got my wife and my three kids and our cat, right? That's who lives in our oikos. Just one more being than I wish, but you know, that's okay. That's who we have. That's what I have in my house. Now back then, if you walked up in Jesus' day and said, who lives in your oikos? They didn't think geographically. They didn't think their roof. They thought loving, influential relationships. So back then, if you walked up to somebody and said, hey, who's in your oikos? They would basically think maybe of, of uh, some, some relatives with whom they had loving, influential relationships. They might think of some neighbors. So they might say, I have some neighbors next door and I have a loving, influential relationship with them. There's some guys I work with. There's some people I'm on a team with. Studies say that the average American has anywhere from 8 to 15 loving, influential relationships. That's your oikos. Everyone has one. Some of them are Christians. Some of them are not. But here's what everyone in your oikos needs from you. I could tell you this, even though I don't know who they are. Everyone in your oikos needs this. They need you to be great. And by great, I mean, as John said, that it would be more of Jesus and less of you. I know that you're an intelligent, witty, winsome person and anyone would be lucky to spend time with you, but that's not what your oikos needs. They need more of Jesus, more of Jesus and less of you. That Jesus would be increasing in your thoughts. That Jesus would be increasing in your character. That it would be more of Jesus in your words and less of you. And more of Jesus in reaction to sin and less of you. And more of Jesus in your marriage. And more of Jesus in your parenting. And more of Jesus in your educational pursuits and in your dating life. And the way you spend your summer free time and in your job and in your finances. More of Jesus. More of Christ. Jesus increasing. Well, next week we're going to carry on our discussion of, of John. But I want to close by asking you a couple questions. The first one is this. What questions do you need to ask Jesus are there some questions you have? 
Are there some doubts that you need to work through? And you just kept them to yourself. I'm afraid what people think. I'm afraid what people say. Remember, this is your life. This is your relationship with God. Ask the questions. Find someone, read your Bible, and begin to have a conversation. Because we have a God who has answers. What questions do you need to ask? Secondly, what situation do you need to trust Christ with? Is there something right now? Are you in a situation right now, maybe like John, maybe not as desperate, but it's not where you expected to be. And you can't really understand right now how God is in it and what God might be doing. You need to trust him. What might that be right now in your life? Something to think about. And the third thing is this. Where do you need to decrease and let Jesus increase? And I, I, don't, I, I mean specifically. Is there a specific area in life right now where you're like, yeah, this, <laughs> this is what God's bringing to my mind. What would that be? Write that down. Begin to get, get some people around you to pray for you and work in that area. I thought it would be good for us to close uh, again by remembering how we, how we got to this place. Because again, sometimes I think in a sermon, you get to the end and, and it can feel like, well, now I have to leave and do all of this stuff. Right? And if that's how you're feeling, then that's not the message I'm trying to send you. The message I'm trying to send you is this. It's not about you and what you can do for God. It's about God and how great he is and what he's already done for you. And that's what communion reminds us of. It reminds us of what God has done for us.